Well, lovely to be here. Well, I wanted to start this morning by just giving a little bit of a precursor to what's happening next week. So it is going to be a great Sunday. So I really encourage everyone to be here. And if you know people that, you know, aren't as regular, give a phone call this week and say, hey, get there on this Sunday because this is going to be a pivotal moment for the future of our church. And uh, as part of that, we're doing something which we haven't done for many, many, many years here is actually take up a Thanksgiving offering. And you might might have missed that a little bit in our all the different promotional stuff that's been coming towards next week. But really, this is just a chance for you to prayerfully consider a contribution to make towards uh, the vision and towards the future. See, people were meeting here in Wangaratta as a Baptist community of faith well before that building was built in 1904 down in that street over that way. <laughs> no, I know where I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, just the one near that, that really big, obnoxious building. I thought it was right, the cathedral. Um, just, just near there, that was a little Baptist church, right? And that was built in 1904. And that was basically the home of this church for 105-ish years or thereabouts. or just, just around that amount of time. And people were meeting well before they had that building. And so for over 115 years, there's been a presence in this city from this church. But we know that we are on the precipice of something new going into 2020 and beyond. And giving thanks to God for the future that he has laid out for us is just as important as thanking him for the past faithfulness of previous generations that have led us to this point of where we are and the position that we're in now. See, next week we are taking up a Thanksgiving offering. Not something we've done for many years, but we'll be casting a new vision next week. And it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone because we've been all working on this for over 15 weeks. But part of this Thanksgiving offering is a dedication of our finances over and above our regular tithes and offerings to make a commitment not just with our head in agreement, but with our heart as well and with our resources. So please prayerfully consider your contribution next week towards our Thanksgiving offering. Now that's enough about money, all right? You've probably never heard me speaking it yet. I don't think I have. So there we go. That's the first. And uh, it's not something that we'll do regularly. But if you look at the scriptures, Jesus spoke a lot about our money. And, and most of that comes back to where's our heart at? And so if we're happy to, to praise God with our voices, are we happy to praise God with our wallets too? It's, sort of just, just, it's a practical display of a surrender to the Lord Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles with me, I want you to uh, open them up with me today um, to James chapter 5. And this morning we're going to look at a message that I've titled Pray in Hope. So this starts off with verse 1 as most chapters do. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Wow, that's heavy, isn't it? Behold the wages of the labourers you mow, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
starting on a real happy note this morning with this passage, aren't we? See, James turns his attention from business people at the end of chapter 4 to wealthy landowners here in chapter 5 who controlled much of Galilee and indeed much of the Roman Empire. He denounces them for their materialistic accumulation of wealth, for defrauding their workers and for their self-indulgent actions that have led to the deaths of innocent, righteous people. Does this sound a bit like today? It doesn't seem that we've really learnt much in society in the last 2,000 years. These landowners, they were materialistic, greedy people. They spent their riches on fine garments and had sums of gold and the latest iPhone. However, those things will not be things that will last forever and they will end up being evidence at their final trial before God and will feed the very flames of the lake of fire where they spend eternity if they do not come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So what these landowners had done was that they had cheated their field workers and harvesters. They'd basically stolen from these workers to support their own lavish lifestyle. They were greedy at the expense of others' well-being because they were in a position of power. They were the one that had the wealth and people reliant upon them for their income. And the comfort that comes, however, for the Christians who were in this instance were in many cases the poor is knowing that their cries have been heard by the judge who will act in response. So they won't be able to take anything with them when they die and face that final judgment and their riches gained by inflicting injustice on others by taking advantage of the vulnerable will be evidence used against them. I think that this passage gives us great comfort to know that in the end, regardless of what wealth we have, we can't take anything from this world with us. But for us, our focus can be to invest into our eternal future. One thing you might often hear me talking about is having a view of the world with an eternal perspective. That means that we look at our world with heaven in mind. That when we make choices, that we make those choices with heaven in mind. That when we approach our life with an eternal perspective, we focus on the things that are of eternal importance rather than just focusing on everything right before us, right here, right now, as we see them now. James then further encourages believers to be patient. Verse 7, Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Many of us are quite familiar with the metaphors that James employs here about patience. He says, look at the farmer. You see how the farmer patiently waits for the rain. How good was it to have some, some nice rain this last week or so? But if I know anything about a farmer, they are industrious and they are persistent people. 
there is always something that can be done on the farm. And so most farmers are busy people every single day, but they are also completely reliant upon the Lord for rain. Now, at first reading of this passage, you might think that these farmers were just sitting around doing nothing, waiting for the rain. But no, they had been hard at work and never stopped. You see, what a farmer does before the rain is he prepares everything so that his crop has the absolute best chance to flourish when the seasonal rains came. And in this region in Palestine, the seasonal rains were were almost like clockwork. They had these very important early and late seasonal rains that used to just come at the perfect times for the region and for growing crops. Amazing. But what a farmer does is he prepares everything. He doesn't wait around twiddling his thumbs. He makes preparations so that his pastures are ready to receive the rain. He put hard work into establishing the best foundation for receiving the rain that would bring growth. James tells his hearers to establish their hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. I love that imagery. To establish your heart. It's, it's not terminology we use very often to establish your heart. But to start, to create, to found, to form, to launch, to determine, to begin, to inaugurate our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This is what we are to do with patience and steadfastness. We are to prepare our hearts before the Lord. We're to wait with patience for his return. But just like a farmer doesn't sit around and do nothing, he spends all his energy and efforts preparing, so we too should spend our effort and energy preparing our hearts in patience, awaiting the return of the Lord. One example that James gives of suffering and and patience is the prophet. The prophets in the Old Testament weren't the most popular people because their message was not a popular message. It was nearly always a message of repentance and return to the Lord. It was not what the nation of Israel wanted to hear, but it was what the nation of Israel needed to hear. And again, it seems the same for our nation today. The message of the gospel is not a popular message, but it is so needed in our world. The message of the gospel is a message of hope for a world that is crying out for hope. Yet the message of the gospel is ignored. The gospel is a message of peace where there is anxiety. We can trust all things to the care, authority and supremacy of Christ. It is a message of hope. It is a message though that is ridiculed, that is pushed aside, that is fought against by our culture today. It's a message that we must not shy away from or be ashamed of because it is the power of God unto salvation. That's the gospel. And James then gives us the example of Job as a model of patience. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story of Job. I reckon most of us would be. But Job was a man who was a very blessed man. He was very wealthy, lovely wife, lovely family, you know, lots of camels. If that's how you measure your wealth, then good luck to you. But that's, that's who he was. He was a very wealthy man. And one day, Satan is walking around in heaven Interesting theological point there, but anyway, we'll move on from that. Um, he's walking around in heaven and, and, and basically tries to test God about the faithfulness of his followers. And so God trots out Job as an example of faithfulness. And Satan says, well, of course he, he's faithful. I mean, look at how he's blessed. He's got a wonderful wife. He's got lovely children. He's very wealthy. Of course he'd be, 
you know, faithful to you and praise you. Look at how, what you've given him. And so Satan then asks for permission to bring calamity upon the life of Job and God grants it. And so Satan sets about destroying all the comforts of his life. Satan takes away his family. Satan takes away his wealth. Satan even takes away his friends. But no, 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 that's not personal enough. He takes away his health. And yet, even through that, Job remains faithful to God. He proves Satan wrong, that God is right. God is still a loving and caring God. And that even though all of these circumstances of of terrible things had, had, had come upon Job's life, he remained faithful to God and God remained faithful to him. And we see at the end of the book of Job that he is then even more abundantly blessed than what he was before. So that's a great formula for us to follow, isn't it? You know, that whenever you're going to struggle through these hardships, you're going to get blessed doubly on the other end. Is that what the Bible saying? No. It gives us an example of that's what God chose to do in this instance. But what the example of Job is, is faithfulness and steadfastness to God. It is not a book of prosperity, the book of Job. It's a book of faithfulness. The faithful example of a man who at the very end of his tether only had God left. When his wealth was gone, his family was gone, his property was gone, his friends were gone, and his health was gone, he still had God. That's the message for us that James wants us to think about when it comes to being patient and steadfast. Thanks, James. <laughs> and our patient waiting for the Lord's return, keeping busy by establishing our hearts, James calls us to be a people of integrity with our words. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't twist words around to suit yourself. Don't say one thing in front of one group of people and then something different to a different group of people. Don't say one thing to someone's face and then say something completely different behind their backs. Be honest. Be a person of integrity with your words. I don't know about you, but I've been in situations where people have been talking and talking a lot of, uh, let's just say, unkind words about other people behind their back. But then face to face, they are as sweet as pie to them. I once worked with this guy who used to, uh, in the you know, behind, in the in the background, as we we're in our little behind the scenes areas, as we were able to find, used to spend his time basically just in these tirades of abuse towards our boss. He would just bag our boss out any chance he had would used to say the most foul and vilest things about our boss that I used to really revile at. Like, just, you know, that's enough. Like, I'm done. And I'd often leave the room when he's in the middle of these tirades. And uh, then in front of her, face to face, he was so sweet, it was almost sickly sweet to the point of him sucking up. That's how it came across. He was completely two-faced when it came to our boss. And so what James is saying is here is that we shouldn't be two-faced. We should be people of integrity. We should do what we say. We should mean what we say and do what we mean. Wisdom is knowing the right path to take. Integrity is taking it. How, how true is that when it comes to our words? We know words that can bring hope. We can choose them and be, do it with integrity. You always have a choice when it comes to your integrity. I was at um, the fish and chip shop on Friday night. And there was this woman there who got her order and she, um, she said, oh, have we paid for that? 
And the woman goes, I don't know. Oh, yeah, we've paid for that. And then just walked out. Now, we all know she didn't pay for that. And then they were like, oh, I don't know. And so they went and checked with the person and were like, no, they didn't pay for it. And so they went and tried to find her. And she was walking, you know, home and whatever else, but they didn't find her. But I sort of thought, is your integrity worth $34.90? Is that what your integrity is worth? Good question to ask, isn't it? How much is your integrity worth? James concludes his book with a call to prayer. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So we all know that Christians should pray. Verse 13 and 14 tell us that. It's pretty clear. James instructs Christians to pray when suffering. He instructs Christians to pray when you're cheerful. He instructs Christians to call the elders to pray when sick. Prayer is a very important part of our Christian life. It's where we speak to God. It's where we share the realities of life and cry out before God in all of our circumstances, whether they're bad and we need his intervention or whether they are good and we praise God for his blessings. But sometimes we forget that prayer is powerful. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. We forget that prayer is powerful. Prayer can heal people. Prayer can lead to forgiveness. Verse 16. You see, a common view held by those living in the time of James was that sickness was caused by sin. And it may be. I don't know. But at times... God may allow sickness upon us because of sin. It may also just be a reverberation of the fall and of sin upon the world in general, a great reminder, shall we say, of the need of the gospel. But we must not forget that prayer is powerful. James gives us the example of Elijah. Elijah demonstrated a prayer of faith. And so grab those Bibles out. We're going to head to 1 Kings. We're going to camp out here for the rest of the day, just about. And we're going to start in chapter 16 of 1 Kings. It's just before 2 Kings, just in case you wanted to find out where it was. If you get to 2 Kings, you've gone too far, turn back left, just after Samuel. So, chapter 16, 1 Kings 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So a bit of a history lesson as to where Israel and the nation was at this point in time. They had already split into the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel and we are then given through the book of Kings these little snippets that give us a a quick summary of who's king in what kingdom, how long they may have reigned in each one and then whether they're good or bad. And so that's basically the story of one kings, right? Of, of kings. And so we're given here that he was the worst of the worst. Uh, this is who, who is king over God's chosen nation, Israel. And he did more evil than all who were before him in the sight of the Lord. 
And so verse uh, 1 of chapter 17. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe, I guess you're a Tishbite if you're from Tishbe, in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So God had sent Elijah to the king to say to him, basically, here's some, some things. You need to get yourself right. You need to repent. But to get you to that point, it's not going to rain until I pray. And so it doesn't rain. Elijah is then told in verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so in an agrarian culture where there is no rain, what then is there none of? Food. Everything relies on rain for food. That's still pretty true today. And so we then are given through the next verses the amazing provision of God for Elijah and for that widow. So you remember that um, uh, this widow had just a little bit of flour and oil, which is what they'd use to make bread, right? Basic sustenance. Well, whilst Elijah was with that widow, the flour and oil never ran out. Do you know how long they were there? It's about two years. Imagine going to your pantry every day and just scooping out that bit of flour pouring in that oil and putting it back and then the next day going and doing the same thing and it never running out. That is amazing. But this widow had a son. One son, that was it. And at that point in time, there was no welfare. There was no Centrelink. If you were a widow, what you were wholly and solely reliant upon for your provision into your future until the point you died was your children. She had one son. What happens to that son? That son dies. What does Elijah do? Raises that son from the dead. Because he knows how important that is for the well-being of that widow. Amazing provision of God. And then God sends him to confront Ahab. Chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So this is three years without a drop of rain. Three years. It's pretty amazing. And so he does as he's told. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Blaming Elijah for all their problems, of course, as you would. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So they did this. And so they sent all the people of Israel and gathered. they all gathered on, the, on Mount Carmel. And Elijah spoke, verse 21, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I'm the only one left. I'm the only prophet left of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God. I'll call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, yeah, that's a great idea. Yep, it's well spoken. Perfect. Love it. Let, let's do it. So they, the prophets of Baal 
do upon that. They, they chop up their bull and they stick it on the wood, but they don't put any fire to it. Verse 26, and they took the bull that was given them, they repaired it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and they limped around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah gets up and he starts having a chat with them. Come on, yell a bit louder. He's a god. Maybe he's out for a walk in his musings or maybe he's, uh, he's relieving himself on the dunny or maybe he's, he's on a journey and, or, or perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. So Elijah's there, he's taunting these people. I can just imagine the scene, can't you, with these 850 prophets all crying out from, for three whole hours straight, nothing happening. Elijah just gets up, one bloke, come on guys, can't hear you, neither can your God. I love the fact, maybe he's relieving himself. <laughs> That's great, I'd, I'd do that. So then they keep out crying um, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And the people came near and he he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seers of seed. So a seer was about seven, seven and a half litres. And he put the wood in order and cut the bulls in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. So now when we think of a jar of water, this would be a big jar of water, wouldn't it? If we're thinking of jar of water. Because the most jars you have in your home, just like my home, full of spaghetti sauce, right? About 600 mils. That's, that's a jar of water, right? No, no, no. Here a jar of water was basically a day's worth of water. They could be anywhere from, you know, 30 to 100 litres, these jars of water. And so conservative estimates put around 50 to 60 litres per jar, not one. And so what they did, he says, get four of these and pour water all over the wood and the animal. So there's maybe, say, 200 litres being poured on this area. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I'm pretty sure that when you want to try to light a fire, water's your enemy, right? That's, that's pretty clear, isn't it? That water does not help you light a fire. And so he goes, put four of these on. Then he says, do it again. And so they pour another 200 litres of water on, on this thing. Now, if, you've, if it hasn't rained for, for three years... Do you reckon water's pretty scarce? Do you reckon it's pretty valuable? And what's he doing? He's just pouring it out, lots of it. He's pouring it out on this wood. So he's done it twice and he goes, no, 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 third time. 600 probably litres of water are poured onto this wood, onto this animal, onto this dirt, the ground, and fills up the trench. So this is just basically this wet sopping mess verse 36 and at the time of the offering of the oblation Elijah the prophet came near and said O Lord God of Abraham Isaac and Israel let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word 
Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. He didn't yell and scream for six hours. He didn't cut himself. He didn't do anything. He just prays one prayer. Look what happens then in verse 38. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was even in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And so then Elijah does what any person gracious in victory does. He goes and kills all of the prophets, all 850 of them, just chops them right up. That's what it says. That's what's in the Bible. I didn't add that. And then in verse 45 of chapter 18, In a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. We were in a series in Acts. We saw gospel teleportation. Remember that? Well, here, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He gathered up his garment, so he hitches up his skirt, and he runs before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. What did it say about Ahab? Ahab rode on his horse and went to Jezreel. So Elijah is running faster than a horse. Good on him. God provides. But you know what? There is something so special about Elijah, isn't there? He was just an amazing man of God, totally in tune with the Lord. He's he's not like you and I, was he? Was he? Really? What did it say in James? Elijah was a man just like us. There's nothing special about Elijah. He's not some super godly prophet or anything like that. No, no, no. He had a nature just like ours. Do you know what? We can pray and have results exactly the same as Elijah. Why? Because we're just like him. He's just like us. What God do we serve? The exact same God. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. That's the God that we serve. And you know what? We can have prayers answered just like Elijah because he's just like us. So how should we pray? And what should we pray for? Well, Jesus had a few tips on this, right? He said we should pray for God's honour. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He said we should pray for God's kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said we should pray for God's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. He said we should pray for God's forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And he says that we should pray for God's protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Talk about praying in hope. The last two verses of James are these. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The greatest hope is in the gospel. When we come alongside someone who's wandering away from God and gently encourage them back to Jesus and that person is saved, well, what a great celebration that is. Their multitude of sins have been covered by the completed work of Christ on the cross. They have been saved just as you and I have been saved. We've been saved from the penalty of sin by the free gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
That's the gospel. That's the hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we should be praying in hope that people come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. That is a wonderful way to conclude our series in James. And I love that James ends his book on such a concise and positive note, praying in all circumstances and particularly being concerned for the salvation of others. James is a very practical, convicting and challenging book to read. It points out so many things that we can be doing better, ways we can practically bring the hope of the gospel to those around us. Has it ever occurred to you though that when we talk about introducing people to Jesus, that what we're actually doing is introducing them to Jesus in us. As his disciples, their first interaction with Jesus is through you and I. And so as we said about being doers of the word, not just hearers of the word, we're setting about being, bringing the hope of the gospel to people in practical ways as the hands and feet of Jesus. That's a great responsibility, but it also it's a great joy that we have. When people first meet Jesus, they meet Jesus in us. That's why I love that Colossians says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. We get to introduce people to, to that Christ in us through our actions and what we do. So let me finish today by encouraging us all to be patient and steadfast with integrity and to pray in hope. The greatest hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bring that hope to people right here in the northeast. Let me pray for you. Dear Lord Jesus, we come before you and we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the blessing it is that we are people just like Elijah. Elijah was a man with, a, with an amazing calling upon his life. But Lord, so are we. Elijah was a man who was so faithful to what you asked him to do. Lord, we can too. Elijah was a man who prayed a simple prayer of faith. Lord, we too can pray simple prayers of faith. Lord, this morning I, I pray a prayer of faith for next week and for the launch of our vision and for our thanksgiving offering. Lord, I pray next week would be a week that brings complete glory to you and that, Lord, it helps determine a focus for our future. Lord, we believe that you have given us this vision that is going to guide our activity into our future and our ministry and our energy and our effort, Lord, to bring glory to you and the hope of the gospel to the northeast. Lord, may we be people who are patient and steadfast with integrity in our words. May we be people who pray earnestly, Lord, that we pray for your honour, we pray for your kingdom, we pray for your provision, we pray for your forgiveness and we pray for your protection. Lord, may we pray in hope. The greatest of hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we pray in the reality of the gospel every day. So I ask that, Lord Jesus, you go before us, you prepare the conversations for us to introduce people to you in us as your hands and feet. Amen.